If I were trying to describe my morning for you this morning, I probably would use the word um, distractions. I've had a pile of distractions this morning, uh, which disrupt how I prepare and think and all that sort of thing. And I've noticed that that happens um, over time in, in specific places. And it doesn't surprise me that maybe this morning that's happened. We're in a series that we've called Hidden Treasures, and I've gotten a lot of different feedback from people, but one of the things I heard was, hey, this is kind of confusing at times. And I understand why that would be. I'm asking you to think like an ancient Jewish person. They didn't think like we did. They looked at the world differently. They were comfortable with problems. In fact, they even writ, writ, wrote those in specifically for you to find them so it would cause you to think and to dig. Um, we talked about a chiasm last week, and if you don't know what that is, I strongly encourage you to go and listen to last week because I fully explained it, but it was a type of Jewish writing where they would actually take an idea that they really wanted you to think about, and they would bury it. And they would expect that you would find some patterns that would lead you to that, and then once you saw that, it would cause you to understand, oh, we really have to think about this idea this morning and in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 combined, they're really one section, uh, there's a chiasm. There's another, there's a pattern there. There's an idea that's buried and hidden, and we're not even going to get to it this week. It's, it's really important. But there are so many things going on in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, and one of them is so heavily linked to the central idea in Genesis 2 and 3 that if you don't understand that, you won't understand the central idea. And so um, we're going to spend some time looking at that, that other linked idea this morning. And the, the way I've looked at this is I, I think what we're messing with here are foundational ideas. These are things um, that could change the way you live if you thought about them seriously. you, you got to remember who this was written to. This was written to a bunch of slaves who'd been slaves for 400 years. It's all they knew. Their great-great-great-great-grandparents had been slaves. They had been slaves. In their minds, their kids were going to be slaves. Their great-grandkids were going to be slaves. At all. And God had come and freed them, but they didn't know this God. And this God was introducing himself to them so that they could learn how to relate to him, so they could understand what was going on. And so he's, he's putting foundational ideas right out there, which is incredible as an opportunity for us. Because the stuff that we're going to see unfold in Genesis 2 and 3 is still happening today. It's going to result in some big messes. And, and we're going to go and look at all of that. And so it's not surprising to me that in the midst of talking about foundational stuff, and I think this morning is going to be one of those things where it's going to impact the way you make decisions, the way you think about your life, and the choices that you make. And I, th I think it's significant. So it's not surprising to me that I've faced a whole bunch of distractions, and maybe you have too. Maybe you feel like you're lucky just to get here. So this morning, I just want to calm our hearts for just a minute. I'm going to ask you to join me as we pray, as we get centered here, and then we're going to get going. Okay? Let's pray. 
God, I really believe uh, what you have for us this morning is important. I think um, the reason you put this in so early in the text to this group of people is they needed to understand why there were problems between mankind and God. How is it that they could have been slaves for 400 years? God, they would have had these kind of questions and you're about to address some of them for them. And for us, we get to listen in and lean in because the things that were happening to them are happening to us. So I ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that God, what um, gets said this morning, despite all the distractions, everything else that's going on, that you would get across what you need to say to your people. As you would help them have attentive hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I want to start with just a real quick overview of Genesis 2 and 3. I told you last week uh, we could have spent um, six months in Genesis 1 through 11. And if I were going to spend a couple months, it would be in these two, these two um, chapters because there is so much in there. We learned in Genesis chapter 1 that God highlighted the creation of mankind by the way it was written. It was written to pop out, to jump out at people and to go, wow, this is significant, this is big. And so it's not surprising that in chapter 2, God gives more details to that part of creation. And so there's a, a creation story about where mankind came from, what God did with all of that. That's worth talking about. He talks about the responsibility that mankind gets, worth talking about. Talks about the importance of work that mankind is assigned to do. All of that is good kind of stuff. Points out in that section of scripture that it's not good for man to be alone. This, isn't, this is not something that God needed to figure out. This was something that Adam needed to figure out. And we could talk about that. Woman is created. And there's a whole section about what was going on with Adam, what was in God's mind as he did that sort of thing. And then it moves into this, this conversation between the woman and a snake and a choice that she makes to eat a fruit and to offer it to her husband, and he jumps in on it too. And it ends with mankind being banished from the garden. All of this stuff is important. It's a section of scripture that we refer to as the fall. And we're going to talk more about that, a whole lot more next week. But here's the thing. There are pieces in this story that are really important for us to understand this idea of what the fall is. I think we have some ideas of what it is that I think are misunderstood and that misunderstanding has lead, led us to some places when we go to make decisions that are, we make the wrong ones for the wrong reasons because we haven't gotten the right information. And so I'm hoping this morning that as we take you into this, that you're going to see that. And part of what I want to look at is about two trees. There's two trees in this story. I haven't mentioned it yet. Here's what I think is fascinating about this. One of the trees is central, but it doesn't appear to be central in the story. The other tree is not central, 
and it appears to be central in the story. And it's this kind of messed up stuff that causes problems. And I hope you'll start to understand what I'm talking about as we get into it. So I want to take you into these two trees. I want to look at them. I want to look at um, how a Jewish person would have started talking or thinking about this, the problems that they would find. And then we're going to start trying to wrestle through how some Jewish rabbis have come to some conclusions about what they see there based on the Hebrew text. Okay? So I'm going to start uh, by introducing us to these uh, to what God is doing in Genesis 2, verse 8. It says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. By the way, uh, we have a reading assignment and all kinds of helpful stuff on the church app that we have. You can go in and join a group, and you'll get, you'll get the reading assignment for this whole series. I'm putting my PowerPoints in there that you can go back through and look at. There's discussion questions, all that sort of stuff. Why do I mention that? Because I want you to put in the back of your mind east. And as you read through the rest of this book, I want you to see what other directions are noted and see if there's anything significant with that. We're going to come back to that in week six of this, but you could find it now. He planted it in the east, and there he put the man he had formed. So God has this man that he's created in his image, and look at where he puts him. He the scripture says God spoke and created things, but not the garden. I, I, I'm very curious about this. I'm going to spend some more time on this after the series is over. But it says here that God planted this. He was very purposeful about what he was doing with this. And then he places mankind in this place. Well, here's some things that were in this. This is verse 9. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. I underline that for a reason. We'll get to it. Trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Here we have our two trees. And based on the translations, all the modern translations, where would you say those, tree two, those two trees were? The middle, Right? Except in the Hebrew, that's not how it's written. In the Hebrew, the tree of life is in the center of the garden, and the other tree is somewhere else. It's there, but it's not in the center, which is going to become kind of an interesting side thing that happens when we see Eve talking about this sort of thing. But So here, here we've got these two trees, and we're going to get some introduction into what God has to say about them. We're going to drop down to verse 16. And the Lord commanded the man, you are to eat from any tree in the garden, underlined again for a reason, in verse 17, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. It's worth noting, by the way, um, who is God speaking to right now when he says this? Eve's not around. He's only speaking this to Adam. And what's going to get fascinating here is Eve is about to have this interaction with a snake about what, what the boundaries were. Where did she get those boundaries from? Well, either God repeated it, which there's no record of that, or it was passed along by the one person who was told what the boundaries were, Adam. And he either gets some things right 
or he gets some things wrong, or Eve gets some things right, or gets some things wrong. We don't know who. But we know God was speaking to the man here. And then it gets interesting. They eat, both of them. And this is the result of this. Um, Verse 22 in chapter 3. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so it goes on to say they were banished and God places cherubims to prevent them from coming back and even touching the tree of life. But here's the question I have. Up to this point, have there been any restrictions whatsoever on the tree of life? Doesn't appear to it. Could they have been eating from that tree all along? Probably. But there's a problem that kicks into place. When they eat from one tree, now eating from the next one becomes an issue. And so God draws a boundary there and says, okay, I can't allow this to happen. I can't allow them, having eaten from the tree of good and evil, I can't allow them to go back now and eat from the tree of life. And this, my friends, is worth talking about. Because it raises a whole lot of questions about what's happening. What, what is happening with them right there in that moment? And the reason this becomes so important is because the stuff that was happening with Adam and Eve in this moment is still happening to you and I right now. And the better that we can understand this, the better off that we'll be. So let's start um, where an ancient Jewish person would start. They would have read all of this, and they would have started to go, well, I, I feel like there's some problems here that I don't understand. So let's look at some of the problems that would come up. Um, so first off, it looks like there's a problem with mankind gaining knowledge. Like, why would God not want mankind to gain some knowledge? It's almost written in 32 or in 322 there as if, oh my word, now they've done this. They could be like us now, which is kind of weird because we were already made in God's image, right? So what, what was the acquiring of that knowledge worrisome for? Why was that a problem? More specifically, why is it a problem for mankind to know good from evil. If you're made in God's image, wouldn't that be one of the first things that you would have given to you right off the bat? Wouldn't you want to know good and evil? Now, here's what's fascinating. Uh, We have such different backgrounds in here. We come from a lot of different backgrounds of being raised, all kinds of different ways. But we have one thing in common, at least. There's a whole lot. But here's, here's one thing that we have in common. At one point in your life, you're a kid, right? You were young. And during that time in your life, I know some of your kids just look at your parents and like, I don't think they were ever young. No, they were. At one point, they were young. And a whole bunch of people, everybody in their life actually, was attempting to help them figure out what was right and what was wrong. In fact, um, 
A really good parent was deeply concerned about helping a child figure out what was right and what was wrong. And most of us would think an irresponsible parent wouldn't care. In fact, here, I can never recall this kind of conversation with a parent. Not once have I heard this. I'm trying to keep my kids as innocent as possible. And so my, I'm going to try to withhold knowing what good and evil are from them. Like if somebody said that to you, besides thinking they're nuts, right? Wouldn't you be terrified? Would you want that kid at your house? I, I read an article, this was a few years ago, it was written by an author who had been interviewing lifelong inmates. They'd, um, they'd committed heinous crimes from murder, rape, all kinds of stuff, and they were in jail for the rest of their life. And, uh, and the author was interviewing them because these prisoners were saying, listen, when we did those things, we knew they were wrong, but we chose to do them anyway. But right now, what we're noticing is in the last five years, we've been flooded with a whole group of young people who have no idea what right and wrong is. They would kill us to have our meal and not think a thing of it. And these inmates who had done wrong were terrified because they were locked up with people who had no concept of right and wrong. You really think that's what God had in mind? That he didn't want you to know what was right and what was wrong. There's a third problem too. I can't think of it, can we put it up? Thanks. If you didn't know right from wrong, how could God punish Adam and Eve? Like if you had a young child and they didn't know the difference between right and wrong and they made a choice, and you could tell they just didn't, they didn't know, wouldn't you correct them and then say, if you do it again, here's the consequence. Isn't that, isn't that what you would do? But that doesn't seem to happen in this story. The story is, uh, I've, I've created a boundary, they cross the boundary, and they're punished. Why is that? Well, because I think it's clear from the text, if you're paying close attention, that there is an understanding of right and wrong early on by Adam and Eve. They ha um, you'll see it in the conversation that Eve has with the snake. We're going to look at that more in depth next week. But she's having a conversation about very clear boundaries that were in place. Adam and Eve make the choice to eat the fruit, and nobody has to come along and tell them, you just did something wrong. They knew it and went and hid immediately. Here's what I think is fascinating. Um, rabbis have talked about this section of scripture for thousands of years, and they've come to this conclusion. That what was happening in the Garden of Eden um, could be referred to with two different words other than good and evil initially. Those two words would be true and false. Things were true and things were false. And there was a way to understand what was going on because there was an order to everything that God had done. 
God had created an order in the universe. There's laws that mandate how that works. He had planted a garden. It was all ordered. He had a purpose for that. There were moral rights and wrongs, and they knew this is true and this is false. And they already had a sense of what right and wrong was. It was already kind of written into their heart. Maybe another evidence that helps you understand that there's a difference is the, the word, the knowledge, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that word knowledge right there is not about intellectual knowledge. It's about experiential knowledge. They already understood true and false. They had, they had a grasp on it. They were created in God's image. But there was something else that was about to come along that was going to start changing the definitions. And what's incredible is it's, it's included in the text for us to see how this unfolds. It's this conversation that she has in chapter 3, verse 6. She has this conversation with herself. <laughs> Here it goes. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She offered some to the man and he ate it too. What, what just happened here? What was the criteria that Eve used to make her decision? There's three of them. One, she said, I think this is good. When I eat this, this will be good for my body. I've had a lot of fruit in this garden. I know what good fruit looks like. This is good fruit. When I eat it, it'll nourish me. She makes this decision. She said, it's pleasing to the eye. This, this is going to make me happy. Like in my mind, as I think about this, this is going to be delightful. And so in her mind... She's reasoned that this is really good as well. This is going to be pleasing for me. She gets excited about this. Doesn't stop there. Says it's desirable for gaining wisdom. In Eve's assessment, eating from this tree is going to be good for her soul. It's going to be good for my body. It's going to be good for my mind. It's going to be good for my soul. This is going to hit the trifecta for me. I've looked at what's happening here. Is there any sense where she stops for a moment and considers what's true and false? She does not. What's at play here in this verse? In all three areas, desire. What do I desire? I desire something that's good. And my assessment is it is. I, I want to be delighted by this. And in my mind, this makes me happy. I'm convinced that this is going to be good for my soul. And all of these appeal to this desire side of who we are. And all of a sudden in the text we see a shift. We see a shift from true and false that's based on something that's objective. 
to good and evil that's based on something that's subjective. It's about my desires. It's about what I want, when I want it, how I want it. See, before in true and false, in the world of true and false, you still had your desires. You're created in God's image. We have these. They're natural. They're normal. But they always came underneath what was true and what was false. We didn't elevate our desires past that. They were just part of the equation. But in the new world of good versus evil, we elevate our desires and we decide if it's good and we decide if it's evil for us. And based on our assessment, we make our choice. And all of a sudden, it gets ugly. Because I don't know about you. <laughs> My experience is that if I really desire something, I can do loop-de-loops in my brain to justify getting there. Like stupid stuff that would harm me, harm everybody else. And that's kind of what we see in the text here. This is how this unfolds. Your desires have a place. Outside of truth and faults, though, they become, they become these weapons, these tools that will take us down any path, take us farther than we imagined, further away from what God had in mind for us, which is exactly what happens with Eve. And you know what's fascinating about this? We actually get to see it in the text. We get to see how this works. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to actually, I'm going to test you guys. Um, if you're at a table, you can talk with the people at your table about this. If you're in a row, turn to the people in your row and have a conversation about this, but here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put up on the screen, I'm going I'm to take the translations from the Hebrew, from the rabbis who are like, nah, this is really how this should have been written, and I'm going to put up um, what they said, or what God said about these trees, and then I'm going to show you what Eve said about these trees, and I want you to see if there's any changes that have been made based on what God said versus what Eve said, okay? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to turn the lights up. We're going to put a little music on. We're going to see if you can identify them. And just maybe I'll give you a hint. There's five, all right? So let's go ahead and put that up. Read those over. Turn to each other and see if you can find the differences. Here we go. All right, how you doing? It's kind of quiet out there. 
I've heard a few mentioned already because I'm listening carefully. All right, let's bring it back in. And I'm going to go from the easiest to the ones that maybe there's no way that you would know because you're not Jewish, right? One, how many of you said the location is different, right? In fact, uh, the Jewish rabbis have talked about how they think this, this is the reason, one of the reasons they believe the tree is not in the center of the garden because it really impacts the story because Eve makes it the center of her garden. Why? Because my desire has been elevated and I want it so much, it becomes the center of my focus and my attention and it is the thing that I care about. It's not central to my life, but I've now made it central. Location is different. How many of you noticed that she said, I can't touch the tree and God never said that? Anybody notice that? Okay, one, two, three, four tables, okay, five. Yeah, it's an exaggeration, which is what we do when we get in that justification mode, right? We exaggerate things to make it sound worse than it is so that our position sounds more reasonable. And so she exaggerates this. I can't even touch this tree. Never said. How many of you noticed that God said the tree was forbidden and she says the fruit is forbidden. It's a subtle change, but it's going to make a difference because she's interested in the fruit and it's the only thing that she's focused on and God had said, no, this whole idea is the problem. I want you to stay away from this and she's making an assessment based on whether the fruit is good, whether it's going to be good for her body, whether it's going to be pleasing whether it's going to be something wise for her to do. And she didn't take the whole picture into account, which is, again, what we do when we justify things, right? When we desire something, we start changing the narrative. Um, this next one you would not have found, so I apologize. Um, but this is, this is one of those Hebrew things. Almost all of our translations, and I've read a lot of different modern translations to see if anybody ever picked up this, and they haven't. In the, in the Hebrew, when Eve talks about dying, she says, it's possible that I might die, is the way it's expressed in the Hebrew. And God said, this is a certainty. But in her mind, she was leaving wiggle room. As much wiggle room as, this could happen, it's not definitely going to happen, I could get out of this. And the last one is, again, another Jewish thing that you would have a hard time seeing. Um, when I underlined all and any in those circumstances, when it's repeated like that, um, somebody in the Hebrew would have understood that the writer was trying to emphasize the abundance of options that, that Adam and Eve had. Look at all these things that you could do. Look at any of these trees that you could eat from. Eve leaves that out. Why does she leave that emphasis out? Because Eve is focused on what she can't have. Not on the abundance of choices that she could have made that would have been good. And so she changed the narrative. And so you see, this is how this works. Welcome 
to the world of good versus evil. Where we look around and we decide based on our desires if something is good or evil and we make our choice based on that. Happens all the time. And I'll tell you what, it happens in subtle ways for things and we do it so much it can happen with big things. I was talking to a guy, he's not at Waypoint, so don't try to figure out who this is, it's not important, right? Talking to a guy who has um, been struggling with pornography. His wife knows it and is utterly devastated by this. And you know what he said to me? He said, all I'm doing is looking at God's creation. He made beautiful things, and I'm just enjoying beautiful things. What could possibly be wrong with me enjoying God's creation? See what he just did? I think it's good. I think this is pleasing to me. It seems like it would be wise if I did this and enjoyed God's creation. And he changed the narrative because nowhere in there did he deal with the true and false nature of this. What's the true and false nature of this? See, just like in the garden, where the end of the story sees Adam and Eve leaving, and what do they have on their hands? They have a mess. The relationship is broken between them and God, it's broken between them and each other. Unless, of course, it goes over really well in your house when somebody says, you did something wrong, and you say, she made me do it. Does that go well in your place? Right? They left a mess. And the scriptures say there was now this disconnection between mankind and creation too. He's going to have to work harder. I'm telling you right now, that guy who said all of that to me was ignoring all the broken messes that he was delivering into his life based on true and false. And it was right in front of his face. The damaged relationships between him and God and his own spouse who was broken up about it and he knew about it and didn't care. Why? Because his desires were more important than anything else. And if I just meet those, it's an okay criteria and I'm fine. And we know how crazy that is when we hear something that big. But we do this for all kinds of stuff. Where we evaluate the choices that we have to make about what we do, about what we say, about where we go based on desire and not true and false. Not based on what God had to say. I don't have time to do it this morning, but I've included it in the notes that I'm putting on that, that app. Uh, the tree of life becomes very clear that that represents God's wisdom into our lives. It's referred to in um, some other sections of scripture that I put on there. Uh, oddly enough, the cherubs who are put outside the garden to prevent Adam and Eve from coming back and taking from that tree are only found in one other section of Scripture in the whole, all of Scriptures, and they're guarding something. You ought to go see what they're guarding. It'll, it'll be helpful for you to understand what the tree of life is all about. God's wisdom. And there was a choice. See, the problem was that even if God would offer you wisdom... If you as a man 
had decided that you were going to elevate your desire above all else, you couldn't even use that. See, you could have lived forever if you would have listened to God's wisdom. But instead, you'll go back and you'll taste God's wisdom and you'll pervert it and it'll get messed up because your desires became the filter by which you make all of your decisions. And I'll tell you what, it gets us in trouble over and over and over again. This is the world of good versus evil. And we're going to see a little bit further next week about how this plays out in how we live and the choices that we make as Eve wrestles with this up close and raises another big question about humanity. But I hope it'll start with you having enough courage to stop and look at the choices that you're making and just asking the simple question, how much of this is my desire and how much of this I already know. Like, I have a conscience. I know I'm crossing this line. I know it's a bad choice. I know what God has to say about this. Or maybe you don't. And maybe your effort should be put in to find out what does God say about this? Because there's true versus false out there for you if you wanted it. Or you could just keep elevating your desire above all else. The results will be the same. There'll be broken relationship with you and God. There'll be broken relationships that you have with others and there'll be broken relationships that you have with God's creation. This good thing that he wanted you to experience will taste like sawdust to you. This is, this is our world. And God had these people that he loved and he wanted them to understand what was going on. He wants us to understand what's going on. Will you pray with me? God, I think as I um, began to understand that what was introduced in your text, what you really wanted the children of Israel to understand is that we have this unbelievable ability to look at things that would not be good for us and to start thinking, I think it would be good. I think it would be pleasing. I think this could even be wise for me to do. And we elevate our desires above your wisdom, above the help that you could offer, and we do damage to our souls. We do damage to this relationship that we could have with you. But God, if we're serious, if we're serious about adjusting our course towards you, then we have to ask ourselves, what's at play in the decisions that I make? And I ask that you would give us the courage to be honest about that. Give us the wisdom to see where it becomes this desire that's twisted, that's taking us to places that are unhealthy, when we know what we know, there's true and false. And it was given for our benefit, for our good. God, we live in a society that has elevated desire so far. It's going to be hard for us to put it in check. 
I ask you to help us to be honest about the kind of outcomes that we want with you. That if we want a loving, engaging relationship that you have to offer, we're going to have to pay attention to how we make decisions. Give us wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.